This morning's reading comes from Psalm chapter 8, and we're reading from the Common English Bible. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You made your glory higher than heaven. From the mouths of nursing babies, you've laid a strong foundation because of your foes in order to stop vengeful enemies. When I look up at your skies, at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? That you've made them only slightly less than divine, crowning them with glory and grandeur. You let them rule over your handiwork, putting everything under their feet, all sheep and all cattle, the wild animals too, the birds in the sky, the fish of the ocean, everything that travels the pathways of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm really glad to be with you today. We are um, kind of wrapping up the first segment of our Deconstruction Reconstruction series called Rebuilding Faith After Deconstruction, where we're trying to understand the origins of some of the ideas that have shaped our faith and our Christianity and our culture and trying to examine them and, and wonder if they're actually serving us, wonder if they're actually bringing us closer to God, more deeply in love with one another, with creation, and with our source. Because a lot of the things that we've been taught have actually been pretty harmful. And so we need to examine those, to deconstruct them, and reconstruct something together that holds up, something that actually brings life, something that is truly good news to understand what God is doing in the world. And so I think we have spent time in some major categories here talking about who is God, for instance, and last week talking about creation. Now last week we talked about creation and the nature of creation. What did it mean for God to make all things? But that leads us pretty swiftly into created beings, including human beings. Who are we? Who are we that God made? What is our nature? And how does that change how we relate to God and to one another? Now, we've probably been told a lot about who we are. And those messages may come from a number of different places, not all of them church or religion. But when you think about the church or what Christianity in particular, Western Christianity, has taught you about human beings, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What are human beings like? You want to shout it out? Sinful? Destined to go to hell? Not worthy? Prideful? Fallen? Worms? Good old Lutheran idea there. Filthy rags. We got some Calvin coming in. I got a couple, one at a time. What do we got? Witches? One more from over here? Unclean? In the pit, flawed? All right. We sound awesome. <laughs> Truly, 
That is a horrifying list of attributes. There was a long pause after sinful, and I was like, well, we probably could stop there because it all... We don't sound too great. Now, when you think about your experience of human beings, and I want you to start as we do in kind of like mindfulness meditations or loving kindness meditations, I want you to to start with someone that you really love. Now I want you to tell me about your experience of human beings. Beautiful. Caring. Hmm? Did you say divorce? Okay. What else? Strong. Strong. Well-intentioned. Mindful. Kind. Empathetic. Compassionate. <laughs> Cameron says the best pastor I've ever ever known. So, you know, I, you, you're speaking a word about Micah. I don't know if that's going to be. Uh, say that again. Stress. One more. Complex. That really sums it up nicely, actually, because I think that, that if we are honest about our experience of human beings, we got a couple kind of more, you know, complicated words in that mix. Um, but, yeah, there is both beauty and pain. There is um, strength and power and vulnerability and woundedness. There are good intentions and horrible impacts, right? Like there's, human beings are complicated. Our experience of humanity is really complex, but our theology of humanity is extremely narrow and simple. Human beings are bad. That is what we have been told, or at least that is what we have named in this room today. That the church has told us that human beings are fallen, sinful, bad, worms, filthy rags, totally depraved, beyond anything, right? But that is not our experience of human beings. And our experience of human beings is not that we're like stellar, perfect, wonderful all the time either. But what does it mean to be human and why is our theology part of what we need to kind of examine and potentially deconstruct Why does that give us such an overly simplified, narrow, and pessimistic understanding of human beings? Now, when I was a teenager, I really identified with that first description. I I was depressed. I was confused. I didn't really know how to care for myself in the ways that I longed to. I was feeling overwhelmed by being a person and I didn't know how to process or support all of my experiences. Honestly, I kind of felt like trash. And it was really difficult to, to imagine a world that I could contribute to. It was really difficult to imagine a world I could be happy in. It was really difficult to imagine a world that I could bless because I felt like trash. Now. You would think that that would make me right for the picking in kind of a more conservative, narrow, human beings are garbage framework. Because they could say, you're garbage, and I could be like, I know. And they could be like, oh, you know, it's cool. God loves you anyway. But I actually could not get on board with that. I could not. Because I needed hope. I needed hope that I could be something more than trash. I needed hope that humanity could be something more than, than 
sinful, then harmful, then cruel. If I was bad, then things were as they should be, and I suffered because I sucked. You could tell me that God was going to forgive me, but if I was bad, then did I deserve forgiveness? And so many in the church were eager to say, no, you don't. You don't deserve forgiveness, but you're going to get it anyway. Hashtag grace. (laughs) Be grateful. Isn't God good? And honestly, that felt horrible to me. That felt horrible to me. I didn't want to live like that, knowing that I was a terrible, awful, no good, very bad human being in a world full of terrible, awful, no good, very bad human beings that were only loved because God was so gracious as to look past how terrible, awful, no good, very bad we were and love us anyway. That didn't feel like love. But if someone could convince me that somewhere inside of me, somewhere inside of my depressed, scared teenage self, that there was something good, something holy, something divine. If you could tell me that actually something had gone horribly wrong and I could be saved from whatever that wound was, whatever that disaster was that was separating me from love and goodness, that I could be healed and made whole, then I could have hope. I started studying. I had been as many of you have caught on the last few weeks studying philosophy, and not a lot of that was very hopeful. (laughs) Nietzsche isn't who you go to to feel good about yourself. (laughs) But my dad was a pastor and was talking about God a lot. And so I went to him and I said, hey, Augustine's pretty convinced about this whole original sin thing. And the early church seemed to go pretty swiftly after Augustine into total depravity. Is that what you're peddling? (laughs) Is this what you actually think? Is this what you think God thinks? And he said, absolutely not. And I said, okay, paint me a different picture. What else is there? What hope do I have? How is this good news? Am I good in the good news? And we talked and we prayed. And he gave me a book, because I was a nerd. (laughs) It is this book, and I still have it, and I still treasure it. I only read, I think, the first 40 pages. (laughs) Partly because that's how I read books, I'll be honest. But also because it was intense to encounter a different idea. And though I only read the first 40 pages, every one of those pages is marked and highlighted. I've written essays in the margins. And I have kept this book and treasured it for nearly two decades now. This is Matthew Fox's original blessing. And interestingly, in here there is a preface written in the year 2000 about his intention to deconstruct the idea of original sin and redemption as the framework for Christianity and to reconstruct creation spirituality. A lot of the conversation on social media and a lot of the panic within the church would have us believe that deconstruction is a new phenomenon, but it is not. I made the case last week that the Hebrew scriptures account of creation is a deconstruction and reconstruction. We are all always ongoing finding our faith, critiquing our faith, and finding a deeper or different sense of truth from what has come before. 
And that is what Matthew Fox was doing in this book, trying to connect to the promise of original goodness. Now, he articulated it in terms of the Holy Spirit. He went back to that creation story, the second one. There are a couple. The second one where God creates humanity out of the dust, but it is still a pile of dirt, a pile of earth, of clay, until God breathes God's life's breath, the Holy Spirit, into that earth. And that is what becomes human beings. Human beings are made of matter and the Spirit of God, the Holy Divine. And the tradition with which I would come to identify, the Wesleyan theological tradition, actually holds something that is extremely powerful interacting with this idea of original sin. And it is called prevenient grace. Now, that may be a really awkward and strange word. It may not mean anything to you now. But if it doesn't, I hope it does come to mean something. I hope it comes to mean a promise. Because this theological tradition says that the Holy Spirit that we were imbued with, the Holy Spirit which is present in all creation, not just human beings, not just in believers, not just in the baptized, but in all created things, there is the provenient grace of God, the gift of God's grace that allows us to seek after goodness, that allows us to connect with that divine breath within us. But that's not something that we have to earn or stumble upon or be granted by God differently than something else because all of creation at the origin was given this grace. And so, through that tradition and through this theology of original blessing that says the Holy Spirit is with you, I started to find some hope. Now, at the time, and I know some of you can relate because I've talked to you about it, I wasn't sure about Jesus. I mean, Jesus seemed like a cool dude, but I just wasn't sure if Jesus was God. And God, let's not even go there. Like, God the Father, blah. I don't know. I couldn't. It didn't make sense to me at the time. And I wanted faith. I wanted spirituality. I wanted to connect to the divine. But at that time, the idea of God the creator, God the father, it just wasn't, I couldn't. It, it wasn't for me. And I could look to Jesus as a teacher. But to try and talk to Jesus as though he were God, that felt I wasn't ready. But at that time, when you talked to me about the spirit of love, the Holy Spirit of God, the one who breathes in and through and with us, the one who sees us through all these things, the one who is present to us and loving us at every moment, even when things are really bad, I actually did feel like that might be a thing. I thought that I could put my faith in that, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of kindness in the universe had accompanied me, and that even in my most painful moments, I could trust that that love was somewhere, somewhere near. And so to begin my faith again, at this time I had not had any faith, to begin my faith anew as an emerging adult, I had to put my trust in the Holy Spirit, in the original blessing of God's love, in the power of the divine that was in my lungs the divine presence that made me human. 
And so I could trust not only that there was goodness in me, but there was goodness in all human beings. The divine breath of God animates all human beings. None of us are beyond redemption because all of us are only human because of the, the spark of divine love that makes us whole. And so I had hope. I could be good because I was made to be good. People could be good because we are made to be good. That helped me to have the beginnings of a trusting relationship with God. And as I studied it, I realized it's really scriptural. All of the ideas that we have of human beings being so terrible, they come from places in scripture too, but they are thoroughly developed outside of the scriptures. And the Bible that we have, especially the earliest texts, talk about who we are in relationship to who made us. Now, last week when we were talking about creation as a whole, we talked about how God created with divine purpose. We are not an accident or an afterthought. We are not here to do God's dirty work. We are here because God chose to be with us, because God created out of love for love, for connection, for purpose. And so, in that first creation story, where we get this big cosmic God who is putting all things in order and brings human beings in. And it says, male and female, let us create them in our image. First of all, shout out to the male-female part. I know many of us, myself included, have been on the wrong end of some really passionate arguments about that text. And in addition to what you may have heard about sunsets, just because God made day and night doesn't mean that the sunset is a snowflake fantasy. A lot of the um, biblical scholars that I trust talk about that idea, male and female, in that passage, in that context, actually as a radically egalitarian inclusion, meant to point out that it is not just men who are made in the image of God, but it is people of all genders who are made in the image of God which in context was an extremely radical inclusion. And so the scriptures that we have, the story that our ancestors told, the truth of our creation mythology is that God not only made us on purpose, God not only made us whole and for relationship, but God made us with God's divine image, each of us, not just some meant to be dominant over others, but all made in the divine image of God. We are divine image bearers. And that idea has context too. Because back in that time, if there was someone who owned property, for instance, and they had to be distant for whatever reason, they would leave behind a mark, a mark of their own image, a mark of, of their own signature in their place so that people who came there would know that they were still looking over it, that they had not abandoned that place that people. And additionally, that person would also often appoint a steward, someone to act in their name, in their place, to care for that property, for that community. And so the image we have in our creation story is that God chose us not only to steward creation, not only to care for the cosmos as God cares for the cosmos, but also to reflect God's divine image as a reminder to all creation that God was near, that God loved all of us, 
and that God was caring, that God would never abandon us. That is our role in creation according to that creation story. We are here to remind the earth of God's love and commitment. We are here to care for the earth as stewards, as representatives of God. We are the ones who are brought to bring love to all of creation. It is a huge responsibility, and it is an honor. And that feeling of honor and responsibility and just the awesome awareness of what God has done here and our place in it, we see that in the scriptures too. And in today we read it in Psalm 8. When I look up at your skies, God, when I look up at what you made, the moon and the stars, you put them in their place. What are we? Oh my gosh, you think about us? You made all this. You pay attention to us. You have made us only slightly less than you. You have crowned us with glory and grandeur. You have let us rule over what you've made. You've let us care for what you have created. You've put everything under our care. Sheep and cattle, all the wild animals, the birds, the fish of the ocean, everything that travels the pathways of the deep and chaotic and unknown sea, we are called to care for. Wow, God. And in that passage, there is that phrase, you have made them only slightly less than divine. It's translated differently in a number of different um, versions. Sometimes it's called slightly less than divine, sometimes a little lower than the angels. And in one really scholarly one, only a little less than God. These parts of the scriptures know and are awed by and maybe humbled by and maybe a little trembling at how much God has blessed us and given us. How wildly powerful we are called to be. How we are meant to be like God to the rest of creation. And not only to all of the created animals and plants and the cosmos and the trees and the sun and the moon and the stars, but also to one another. Because again, in that second creation story, in Genesis 2, we have this kind of experimenting God. God wants the first human being, the one who's breathed into, the one who is filled with the Spirit of God, to have a companion. Now God makes all kinds of animals and runs that by the first human being, the Adam, the earthling, and says, eh? And none of it seems quite right until God says, I know, you need an equal, you need a partner. And so puts the earthling to sleep, and from the earthling makes another. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so human beings are called not only to love the earth, and to care for all that God has created in that way, but for one another. We are made to be helpers to one another. That is the word there. 
easer, helper, companion. In the way that scripture reflects elsewhere, that word easer, God is a helper to us. And so not only are we called to be God-like stewards of all creation, but to be God-like helpers to one another. So in that story, we are made not only for God's glory, not only to be in relationship with God, not only to be stewards of the earth, but to love one another, to keep one another company, to share joy and experience, to help one another. We are imbued with the divine blessing, infused with the Holy Spirit of God. We are animated by the breath in our lungs, which is God's breath, a little lower than the angels, just less than divine, only a little lower than God. So if we're so great, when did everything go wrong? This, I think, is the appeal of the fall story of original sin. Adam screwed it up for everybody, and now everything after that, we all just fall into that same pattern. Now, when we think about it in terms of this overwhelming original sin that makes us all bad, that can feel pretty horrifying. But in some ways, it can't be all wrong. How many of us have spent time thinking about our own generational trauma? And what if what we are naming with original sin isn't this internal badness? Adam chose badness, and therefore we all are bad. But it's a naming of a wound that began so long ago that it has become mythologized. So long ago in our beings, in our history, that we can barely trace it back, but we can name an original wound. And what if we talked about it that way? The original wound. Now, when we talked about sin for a number of weeks earlier this year, that is how we talked about sin, a wound, a break, a tearing in connection, something that makes love impossible but needs to be healed in order that love can be restored. We have, as humanity, generational trauma, generational wounding. But we are not left to that. And when we hyper-individualize it, when we say, Adam sinned, therefore I sinned, but I'm only in charge of mine, that separates us, not only from the humanity that we are supposed to care for now, but from where we come from and what we are caring for into the future. I think that when we say, why did everything go wrong, and that feels like a legitimate question, it is easy to answer, well, yeah, I'm probably trash. Especially when powerful people representing God are telling that to you. I think it is easy when we've been wounded to look around at everyone and be like, yeah, they're the worst. Humanity sucks. No wonder. But I think that we are called back to our creation, back to our origin story to understand what we are really dealing with. And as with all of our deconstruction, I really want to invite you to examine the power dynamics here. To always ask and answer the question, who benefits from my belief? Who benefits from what I have been taught? So 
if you've been taught that you are garbage, if you have been taught that you are evil without hope unless the divine intervenes, if you have been taught that the divine will only intervene if you obey exactly correctly according to the people who are standing in front of you with authority at church, who benefits? There are a lot of people in power that benefit greatly from us internalizing the wounds of the earth, saying, yes, I am trash. Yes, you are trash but reducing it ever and always to an individual experience. How many times have we had this conversation about racism, where we talk about structural evil, we talk about the ways that these communal powers come to oppress the vulnerable, and it results in diversity corporate trainings about how not to be a jerk. It is an individualized understanding that if only you can be a nicer person, then we don't have to talk about structural oppression. In this book, Original Blessing, he quotes uh, Kirster Stendhal writing about Augustine and original sin. I apologize for the 70s language here. Man turned in on himself infatuated and absorbed by the question not of when God will send deliverance in the history of salvation, but how God is working in the inmost individual soul. The idea of original sin, to the extent that it takes us into self-loathing, self-worry, into being concerned with our own individual salvation, it takes all of our energy away from looking at the cosmos that we are intended to care for. It takes our attention away from our call to care for the earth. It takes our attention away from the ways that structures of oppression have formed from individual choices and patterns and all of these things. I'm not here to let individuals entirely off the hook. But when we are only concerned about our soul, who are we stewarding anymore? How are we acting like God then? rather than thinking about the whole creation, examining the wounds of the cosmos and trying to heal that generational trauma that is wounding and hurting over and over and over again, rather than looking at all of creation and saying, how can we care for one another? We are prompted to think about our own individual souls as fallen or saved. This does not fit with the Hebrew scriptures at all. In the Hebrew scriptures over and over again, we are identified as a people, not as persons. We are judged as a people. Whole cities and nations are judged as following the call or not. And because we think of judgment as about individual salvation or damnation, that feels terrifying. When really the Hebrew scriptures are all a big conversation about whether we as a people are caring for one another properly. The prophets will just not shut up about the widow, the sick, the orphan, and the poor. They are not concerned about individual salvation. That's not the question on the table. The question on the table is, are we being good stewards of one another and of the earth? The question on the table is, are we acting in our divine image? Are we being divine toward one another? Are we loving as we are called and made to love? This is what happens when we are reduced to individuals responsible only for ourselves. 
It becomes about individual behaviors and feelings rather than the impact of being so separated, isolated from one another. If we are so twisted up inside about whether we will make it into heaven, we cannot bring our full efforts to bear in working with all of humanity to love creation into wholeness and healing. The earth which we have been called to care for, think about what happens to the earth in this, in this theology. There are some who would abandon it altogether because they think of human beings as individual fallen souls soon to be condemned forever or swept up into heaven. Creation is inconsequential in that theology. God is going to sweep us up into heaven. Who cares about the rest? Have they forgotten Genesis? Have they forgotten who we were created to be? God has called us to care for the earth to care for one another. And you know what? God has given us everything we need to do that. I know it feels so impossible. I know it feels so big. I know we look around and we say there isn't enough. There isn't enough. We're working with crumbs here, and we need so much more if we're going to save one another, if we're going to heal one another. But I want to bring you back to a passage we talked about maybe a month or two ago. In the book of Mark, the feeding of the 5,000. Now this is a story, it's one of many feeding stories where Jesus has this miraculous provision for all. And there is so much, again, with that individual, that fascination about individual salvation and Jesus' individual power and Jesus' magic that has this idea that like, Jesus is just like, hey guys, you have seven loaves and two fish. Yeah, okay, like look that way. Poof, hey! food for everyone. But I don't believe that that's what happened in that passage at all or any of the feeding stories. And I'm not saying it wasn't a miracle, but I'm saying that that's not what the miracle was. The miracle was Jesus's invitation to act as stewards of all creation and one another. The miracle was Jesus telling us to trust in our own goodness, trust in our own generosity, and trust in one another's goodness and generosity to put out all we had, not to hoard for ourselves, not to live in fear, not to worry more about our own individual meal than the rest of the creation, but to trust that creation has enough and that when we are willing to put forward everything we have, that we discover there is more than enough there is more than enough. It is our fear and panic that causes us to hoard and think only of ourselves. And when we do that, some have more than enough and others go empty. But the logic of all creation is abundance. The logic of all creation is that there is enough here. And we are given the divine power to show up with love and generosity and kindness. And when we do, we discover the miraculous abundance of creation. In that story, the result is that everyone has enough to eat and they have left over seven baskets of bread. And that seven baskets is an important image because seven brings us back intentionally to the seven days of creation. Abundance and generosity, love and kindness, offering ourselves is what fulfills the intention of our creation. 
those 5,000 people were acting as good stewards of one another that day, offering what they had, enjoying together their daily bread, trusting that they would have enough in one another's goodness, not fearing one another's evil, not fearing their own evil, not fearing scarcity. But the miracle was trust. Trust in enough and trust in goodness. And the result was not only a reminder of the fulfillment of creation, but an invitation into the ends of creation, which is rest. On the seventh day, God rested. And when we can trust in one another and bring forth our goodness, we can rest in our goodness and trust each other. You were not made to quake in fear, wondering if you are evil. You are not made to worry about your salvation. You were made to rest in your own goodness, given to you as a gift, an image of the divine, you are only slightly less than the whole power of love in the universe. Rest in that. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. You are so, so good. We pray that you would allow us to feel that goodness coursing through our body. God, we pray that you would allow us to know our goodness, know our original blessing, which is your love that it is your love that defines us, that animates us, that brings us alive. God, may we trust in the goodness that you have given us. God, may we dispel the myths and lies that keep us separated from one another and looking at our own selves, our own souls in fear and terror rather than looking to one another to dismantle systems of injustice and oppression. God, may we trust in our goodness as we work to heal one another as we work to steward one another into love and wholeness, we know we can do it because you have told us and shown us over and over again. We thank you for making us in your image of grace. Allow us to rest, to celebrate, and to live in that goodness. Amen. Amen.